Today's teaching text comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. Uh, I'm just going to pray. So short. Dear God, please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I want to say as we begin this morning, this is not the first time that this dynamic has been present in my 20 years of preaching sermons, Um, but I sense I'm supposed to share something today that I want to admit is very much still in process in me. Um, There uh, there is occurring in me, I believe, um, a shift in how I think about prayer and how I want to participate in prayer for the rest of my life. And I'm going to try to articulate that even though uh, I'm not coming from a place of like established uh, in this this new new place of conviction or practice for for very long. Super fresh. I'll say more. Um, Some of what I'm starting to believe about prayer I know would have caused me to get in an argument with a younger version of myself um, and how I thought about God and how uh, the younger version of myself knew, knew everything and uh, was so sure about it, um, was obnoxious in that way. But um, I, I'm starting to realize that something about how I have envisioned God as being sovereign and powerful and in control has limited what I have, how I have viewed prayer and how I've viewed human agency in prayer. Um, so I want to set all this up um, by, by telling a couple of stories um, of conviction that have taken place from the Holy Spirit to me in the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, the first moment was in our staff planning meeting. Um, we were talking about our, our life together as a staff and as a church and things we were hoping for and planning for and, and, and dreaming for and putting on the calendar for this year. And we were all going around and just saying, hey, what, what's, you know, we had had some prep for this and said, what, what's the things God has on your heart for this year and maybe the first part of this year? And I had three impressions that I felt like God had put on my heart um, that I was trying to articulate and they were personal and convicting and um, I'll, I'll give them to you really quickly. This is not the main point of the sermon, but I just want to say that um, the three things were to champion others, um, that I felt like this was a year in particular where I needed to target people in my life for encouragement and empowerment in a way like I never had before. Literally to have a list of people running every month that I'm saying, I'm going to find these people and pour as much life and encouragement into them as I possibly can. One of my favorite um, stories in movies is the movie Big Fish, um, because it reminds me of my own father a little bit, who was a crazy storyteller. Um, but at the end of his life in the movie, this is not a total spoiler, um, but they're there, and this man's life is ending, and it basically says that um, even though he didn't uh, 
reach some of his dreams, that his dream had been to help other people reach their dreams, and it's like such a beautiful, powerful moment. So championing others. The second was life-giving routines. Um, I feel like God has had me in places where walking through crisis or spectacular moments or times of survival mode, um, that I've, I've found God in those in the last few years. But uh, what I feel like God is calling me to in this year um, is just to find God in the ordinary rhythms of life like never before. Um, of course, there's sometimes still going to be crises and spectacular moments, but it's, it's an issue if we can't find real meaningful joy in God and God's presence in the ordinary uh, moments of our life. And the last is creative work. Um, there, there are some things that uh, I think the first two are kind of a foundation for some of the creative work that I feel God's calling uh, me to and us to as a, as a church. Seeing the kingdom of God, think about this. I know this is just like church language sometimes. It could just like bounce off our hearts. But seeing the kingdom of God come in Brooklyn as it is in heaven is, is, is a tremendous thing to imagine. And it's going to require some really creative work to, to not only be the type of people who long for that and, and can sustain participating in that, but to see like, uh, you know, real change take place in our borough and in, in, in our city. So... Um, as I'm sharing this with our staff, there's a lot of resonance happening. The things they're sharing, we're finding overlap, but it also, not just resonance, but we sort of, we started praying and there was a deep sense of conviction (laughs) that there were things that we needed to repent for, that we needed to say, openly admit to God before one another that, um, we had been misaligned in some things and we needed to, to, to experience repentance. What I mean is deep spiritual, spiritual change. And so, um, we began to, to pray, and, and some of what was stirring in that prayer time, I just had such a powerful sense that there was repentance for us as a whole church. And so I changed the um, sermon series uh, a little bit and included um, that sermon last week on repentance. And if you didn't hear it, it's, on, it's online. You can go back and, and review it. But I think there's no way we're going to grow into the people God has, is calling and inviting us to be or to grow into the church God is calling us or inviting us to be unless we can do the work of honest, vulnerable confession and deep spiritual change, which is repentance. And of course that would be so. Otherwise, if we're not fully perfect and totally arrived, then we're going to have to have a process by which we regularly change. And So I was just deeply stirred that repentance has to be an essential part of our life together as a community. We have to say, God, the change we want to see in the world, would you you keep doing it in us? Would you not give up on us? Would you be patient? And I feel like God is resonating saying, yes, that's that's what I'm, uh, I'm here for. So the second moment, that was moment number one, the second moment of conviction was this week. I was walking home from the YMCA. And uh, not super, uh, not super spiritual. I wanted to listen to a podcast because it's like a fifteen-minute walk, and I was like, I can knock something out, maybe on the Super Bowl or something. Um, and I felt like I wasn't supposed to. That I was supposed to pray instead. And at the beginning, leaving the Y, I was like, All right, I'll pray. Um, so I'm walking along and I'm talking to God about the things I've been wrestling with, the things I've been feeling, and I'm like, I basically pray what's, oh, I feel like a very basic, normal, safe prayer. God, just show me your way. Show me what you want for, for me in this season of my life. Teach me, God. Show me the way of life. And uh, I felt a really firm conviction. I don't know how you sense if it's your thoughts or God. That's a complicated thing. But very strongly, I felt a sense of conviction come into my heart. And I think I put the exact words on the screen of what that conviction is. Yeah, this is it. You've been contending with the wrong things. 
What you have put your practical hope in for success in the church and life has been gifts and strategy and vision sharing and responding to urgent needs. It is time to learn to contend in prayer. I'm just going to leave that up for a second and, and say, say what I mean um, and what I think God meant for me to understand is um, how, how we go about living the dream that we're, we're all living together as, as a church and trying to see the kingdom of God come in Brooklyn as it is, as it is in heaven, trying to be living, thriving, flourishing, walking in the, in the power and authority and, and fullness of life that comes with being sons and daughters of God. Whatever Jesus meant by, I have come to give you life and give it to you to the full. If we're not experiencing that on some way, then we say, why? why? Why wouldn't we be? And I think for me, God was saying, you've contended with gifts, God-given human abilities. You've contended with new plans every year and then every part of, of, of the year. You've contended with vision sharing, trying to rally people around the new, the, new, the new plans. You've contended with responding to urgent needs. There's always in a community this size someone who, who, who wants to have a meeting about the joys of what's taking place in, their ch- in church life. And then there's someone who wants to have a meeting about how they're disappointed and frustrating of what's, frustrated with what's going on in church life. There's always a group that needs to be prepared for marriage. There's, there's groups that are going through... All, right, so so there's so many urgent needs that can w- respond to. Your job's the same way, I'm sure. Like the tyranny of the urgent can dominate us. And it's not like I haven't prayed. But what I've practically thought was going to bring success, was going to help us live our vision, was going to help me be the person I, basically was like, those things, gifts and plans and vision sharing and rallying people and responding to needs. And I've prayed, but I don't know that I've learned to contend in prayer. And I want to try to describe what I mean by that for the rest of this time. Um, but as soon as that conviction entered my heart, I thought, God, you're right. And I find that to be true quite a bit. Um, I, I've relied on these things so much, and as natural as that may be, like I don't think there's, God's going to take us to a place where even if we learn to contend as a church in prayer in a profoundly meaningful way that's different from our normal reality now, I don't think we're ever not going to rely on the, the, the natural abilities God's deposited in people or the spiritual gifts God's deposited in people or, or vision or rallying people or response. We're never going to stop doing those things, but they're a recipe for deep frustration and exhaustion if they're not supplied by the power of the Spirit and if they're not sort of if the, the river of living water that comes through contending in prayer is nourishing that reality. So here's the things we're most after as a church. Actual, real, meaningful, new, spiritual life. One of the ways we talk in Intro to TGC about how we measure success as a church is that people are going from spiritual death to spiritual life. In whatever way Jesus is talking with Nicodemus late at night, that you can be born in a way that you come alive in a, and become something new by the power of the Spirit, brought into the family of God. We want new life, deep spiritual change, growth and maturity, joy and freedom, loving God's presence, being a loving community that sees the, 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 the chains on people's lives broken, that sees systemic injustices in our city that transformed and healed, that actually sees people's bodies and minds and relationships healed. That's the stuff we're after as a church. And I want to say, 
I don't think we can get all the way there with a nice talk, some available small groups, and a growing children's ministry. Not like those things don't matter a lot. I'm not knocking their importance. But I want to say I feel like myself, and maybe this is true wider than just me, that we've relied too much in our lives merely on our own resources. And we might be able to build respectable lives that way, but I don't know that we're going to fully join in to the abundant life that Jesus is inviting us to. So, last story from my week. How are we doing? Um, did you guys notice that there was a polar vortex? Uh, eight degrees is, is unpleasant. Uh, I just want to say that. And it's tough to, to know. Like, uh, my apartment, no matter what is happening outside, is 92 degrees. Um, we, we, we live right, right above the boiler, and so, like, it doesn't matter what you do to the radiator. It's always 92 in our house. So to go from 8 to 92, I feel like is unhealthy. Um, like, it's like, like you're in a Russian spa, and you, you, like, come out of the sauna and into the cold bath immediately. Like, oh, I've shocked my system. So I'm, like, either bundled up for a journey through the Arctic, or I'm sitting around in, like, mesh shorts and no shirt, like, watching TV. This has been my reality. Um, but we, we were doing our nightly prayers with, with my, my older kids um, the day before it got really, really cold. We were like sort of terrifyingly looking at the Apple weather app, and you're like, eight degrees? Are you serious? Well, let's move. Um, and I was standing there with my kids, and we're going through the normal prayers, and like sometimes like you're just tired, and you want to like get, get out to the living room and have Seinfeld on, and so you're just running through the prayer list, like all the things you normally say, and yet I, I felt like... Uh, um, I was convicted about how terrible these cold days were going to be for people who don't have a place to go. Like, it's going to be awful for the homeless population of our city. So in order to, you know, like impress my kids with my spirituality, I mumble out a prayer. You know, God, if there's some way that we as a family can, can help someone who needs a warm place, please show us that and give us the courage and compassion to take action if you open that opportunity. Anyway, next morning comes. I'm on Instagram, not praying, and I see a post from a friend about a need. And they, they need folks to come help at a church uh, that was going to open its doors um, after a meal to serve the homeless and then let them stay overnight and sleep in a warm place on the, on the pews of the church. And uh, they weren't sure how many people were going to show up, so they needed folks who could come and stay in shifts and make sure that the building was secure. And I read that, and I'm like, No! crap, I think I have to do that. I just prayed for some opportunity to help, and now here it is. I shouldn't have looked at Instagram. I'm off social media. Um, so long story short, I, I go, I go. Um, it turns out only, they normally have like 20 people, and only four people showed up. I think it was like so cold, people were like, I'm not even traveling to the meal. Um, but uh, Four guys showed up. When I arrived at eight, they were all already asleep. The guy who runs the place had it more than in control. So like my heroic sense of myself coming in to really save the day here was sort of blown flat right off the bat. And I didn't know what else to do, but I'm like, I'm already here. It's so cold. I'm going to stick around. Um, so I sat on a bench uh, for the next five hours in the lobby of this church um, I had a little nice chat with the guy who runs the place and heard his phenomenal story, and I read three chapters of a book that totally changed the way I see prayer. And I started to realize, like, really obviously, these people would have been absolutely fine 
I think God just wanted me to come so I could hear this guy Frankie's story and to have my thinking about prayer revolutionized. <laughs> and to have five hours just to sit there with literally nothing to do except, except read and pray uh, and just be still. And uh, so I want to tell you what, I, what I'm learning about prayer, specifically intercessory prayer. And it's going to take more than one week to do that. And I want to stress again, I'm learning this. It's fresh. I think I'm going to be growing in the practice of it for the rest of my life. Um, I want to say a few, a few it, would be, it would be a miss not to share a few of the resources that have been really helpful in preparing for this series have been, Philip Yancey has a book on prayer, Does It Make Any Difference? Richard Froster has a book specifically, he has lots of stuff on spiritual disciplines, he has a book on prayer called Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home. But the book that I read sitting at this, at this church on the cold night was Dutch Sheets' book on intercessory prayer. Now, I want to warn you, you should go read it. Um, but I also want to warn you that uh, it is a simple book, and I haven't finished it yet, but there are preacherisms in there that make me cringe. Um, uh, and yet, how this man has discerned the role of prayer in the world, and more importantly, clearly practiced it, was, was I don't know another way, this is not hyperbole, it was astounding to me. I've prayed for many things in my life, and I've seen God, I believe, act in response to those prayers and seen things really change. But I want to confess, I think my default is I pray for my needs, I pray for my own change, I pray for my family, I pray for our church, and I pray for our city some, but I forget, I forget to truly imagine myself as fully participating with God in an essential way to bring about expressions of God's life and kingdom in the world. And I think, and I'm going to unpack this a little bit, but I think that this is, comes with me holding somehow an incorrect assumption about God's sovereignty, which I really believe in, but I think I have let myself off the hook in how I pray, somehow connected to that, and I'm still sorting it out a little bit. I've prayed, but I don't know that I've contended the way I, I, I sense God is leading me. And so I want to say to you, I'm not just preaching to you about repentance. I am repenting before you for this lack of contending prayer in my own life. I want to invite you all the way in. I want to invite you to come up to me afterwards and say, yeah, I agree with that conviction. Here's the way you've been missing it, truly. But I also want you to know that I believe the Spirit is leading me in change and maybe leading all of us to a place of change. So I, I want to give you literally, I know uh, how much time we have, I want to I give you some highlights and some headlines from what I sense God speaking to me about prayer, and then we're going to unpack all of it a little bit more next week. So Jesus' disciples come to him and ask him how to pray, and he off the cuff seemingly offers them this model prayer. This is then how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus is teaching on prayer. He's covering like, I, don't, I of course don't think he's intending that this is the only thing we should ever say to God in prayer. We have a bunch of examples of Jesus praying uh, praying things that fit into these categories but are different language than this. So, of course, that's appropriate. Jesus has, uh, in, in Luke 11 and here in Matthew 6, some other really practical teaching on what a prayer life is supposed to look like. But this model prayer is something we return to over and over again. And 
I want to focus on one part of it this morning for the, for the remainder of our time. And I want to say this, and I feel like we give so many caveats at this church. I'm not going to give enough of them this morning to satisfy everyone, but I want to say I know that there are reasons to be skeptical about prayer. And I'm not going to take the time to list them all, but things like, maybe you're on this end of the spectrum, does God even exist? And if he does exist, does he really care about what's going on in my life or my perspective about how things should be going in the world? Questions like, does prayer really change things? Or is it just internal slight adjustments in me where my attitude and character and thoughts get adjusted in prayer, but basically God's train of how the world is going to go just rolls on? How about this one? This is one that's tough for me. Does God need our prayers to take action on something? What about the prayers that seem like they aren't answered? Or what about the prayers that seem like they take a very long time to be answered? There seems like a huge delay. The novelist Kurt Vonnegut, I think, puts the way a lot of people feel into words. He says, I don't think it at all likely that God requires the ill-informed and contradictory advice of humans as to how to run the world. If he's all wise as you say he is, doesn't he already know what is best? And if he's all good, won't he do it whether we pray or not? Honestly, that seems, that seems kind of reasonable. Like, if he's all wise, he knows what to do. If he's all powerful, he can do it. So what's the point? I think when you track through the Lord's Prayer, we have the parts that we're really easily comfortable with, and then we have the parts that are challenging to us that we might want to skip over. Like, I think most of us, and, and generally culture-wide, not just in, but even in the farmer's market and over our neighborhood and over our city, people that see prayer as a way to meditate and to let go of stress, cool. That sounds great. Self-care, I'm going to pray, I'm going to meditate. I believe there's something meaningful to that, and, and you can do, do it however you want. Prayer as a centering exercise, essential. Let me get my breathing right. Let me become aware of God or the universe. Pr- prayer as a channel to be changed from the inside. Like, no problem there either. Like, most of us are on board with, you know, maybe there's a practice here that's going to help me, help, help me change. But Jesus is saying that on top of that, in addition to that... <laughs> Meaningful prayer is saying to God, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This seems to be central to the heart of Jesus about what prayer is about. And it would mean that prayer would have to really work in the way that we're a little skeptical that it does. The sort of prayer that joins God's desire to bring redemption and God's desire to push back the darkness and bring the light and bring us into a place of full participation in that. Like God's saying, I want you to know this is my heart and I'm not going to fully do it without your joining in. That's, that's a really important thing that Jesus seems to be teaching in this model prayer. Prayer that actually makes a marked difference in the visible, tangible world, in the lives of people I interact with, in the real issues they face. Prayers that could change a government. Prayers that could result in someone who's blind receiving sight. Prayers that could help someone who's far away from God meet God in salvation. Prayers that someone could be filled with the Holy Spirit and become entirely new. Prayers that a racist policy that has stood for years would be changed. 
prayers that a systemic piece of injustice that is ruled over an element of our city could be broken and freedom could, could flow in. Prayers that an old grudge in your family or in your friend group could turn into forgiveness. Actual prayers that could really, because they were prayed for, change things. So, my underlying challenge, I think the thing I've been confronted with in, the, in these days is I've been a little shy to all the way and fully say God needs our prayers. I think Kurt Vonnegut has understood a little bit of the posture in my heart. God is God. He's loving and powerful and knows everything. So how could I ever say truly in a meaningful way God needs anything? And also, God doesn't change. He says, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what kind of meaningful difference are my prayer utterances going to make? And I'm going to get to that in a minute. If those questions are important to you, I want you to hold them in your mind for a minute. But even with those things, even as those are real thoughts in my head, what I have been willing, let me tell you how far I have been willing to go, even if it hasn't been far enough. I have been willing to say, there are some things God will do if we pray. Like prayers about relationship. I think the world is, is meaningfully about relationships, that we are, we are made for love in such a significant way. And so in prayer, we can enjoy God's presence, and that's deeply important if you are made for love. The second is, when I pray, I do see things from God's perspective, and often that changes my attitude or my ideas or my conclusions, my, my sense of being, right? I, it is changed in prayer. I've known this from the, theological uh, assent and personal experience. I confess and I believe that God really does hear me when I pray. When I confess my sins, I believe he hears and I've experienced meaningful change. I know, it, I know in my heart that if I pray for healing, God might do it. Like I had an experience in coffee hour. Some of you have shared this with a, de- a dear friend of mine was experiencing chronic back pain. And she came up to me and I asked like, you know, this sort of like, I want, I want to confess to you all. I'm terrible at small talk after church. I'm the worst at coffee hour. I can't get a, a, a I, can, I cannot think to ask you how it's going because my brain is utterly fried. So if you think I'm awkward, um, you're like, this guy seems so nice and accessible when he's up front. And then after trying to talk to him, he's so weird. That is true. You're not wrong. But I'm standing next to my friend and I'm asking her, how are you doing? And she's like, I have this chronic back pain. And she's like, don't pray. I'm like, what? She's like, I don't want you to pray because I don't think God's going to do anything about it. And so just please don't pray. I'm like, I don't know. We chat, chat, chat. I'm going to pray. I feel like I'm contractually obligated to pray. I'm a pastor. Um, <laughs> I put my hand on her back. I'll ask permission first. Uh, put my hand on her back and I just pray. And my friend calls me the next day. She's like, I jumped over a turnstile. My back is good. And like she keeps reminding me like all the doubts I have about will God really change. She's like, hey, remember when you prayed for my back at coffee hour of all places and, and my back was healed? And still I'm like, I'm not sure how it works. I don't know. God's sovereign. Huh? Should I participate? I've known in my heart that if I pray for healing, God might do it. I've known that if I pray for someone to experience and be drawn to salvation, God might do it. And then I thought, if I pray for our elected officials in government, man, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they get like a little boost or something. Like, do they feel it? How about the collective of all of our prayers? Like, if you collected all the bowls of all of the prayers of the saints around the world and you dumped it on the head of Trump, would he be like, 
Like, I have no idea. I don't know what happens to him if we pray. I think we should pray for him. And all of our, like, I'm not picking on Trump at all. It's just, it's an easy target. Um, You're welcome in this church, no matter your political affiliation. Please know that. Um, But I pray for a, a government and elected officials so little because I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how much difference it's gonna make. I, I, when I think about massive nationwide change or a revival taking place, I'm at the same place. I'm like, I, I want it to be true. I think probably it is, but I just don't have, here's the thing. I have not known very much endurance and passion in that type of intercessory prayer, in contending prayer. I'm gonna, I'm gonna define that in just a minute more, more meaningfully, but I, what I mean is just consistently praying for other people that I don't know well, for the world, for its systems, contending, if this makes you uncomfortable, I'm sorry, but contending in spiritual warfare for powerful and real change. It, the things just seem so massive. And I, I kind of like theologically, I don't wanna leave God on the hook for something that I don't know all the ins and outs of what actually would really make for meaningful change. I don't see the full picture. And then the other side, actually more importantly than how I don't want God to be on the hook is I don't want that responsibility. Sometimes I just don't want that type of responsibility. So here's what I'm saying. I've been okay saying that if we do pray, God might do something. But I've been pretty shy to say Unless we pray, God won't do something. I don't know if I'm articulating that exactly like with the full way. I'm just going to read it. I'm okay saying God will do some things if we pray, but I've been much less comfortable saying God won't do certain things unless we pray. But I am becoming more convinced that that is the case. And I want to lay out for you why, and I don't think it makes God any less sovereign or powerful or able or in charge but it does elevate the place that God has insisted on human beings taking in the world and how we are supposed to shape the world in partnership with God. That he has given us tremendous agency in the world and one of the primary ways we exercise that agency is in intercessory prayer and we will never fully join God in the renewal of all things unless we learn to contend in intercessory prayer like we never have before. So, what we're going to do, this is part one of intercessory prayer. Part two is going to be next week. We're going to go for just like five, five, three, two, ten minutes um, through some of the scriptures and and confront some of our assumptions, some of at least my assumptions. But I want you to listen to, so you know what I'm talking about, I want you to listen to this description of intercessory prayer from Richard Foster. If we truly love people, we will desire for them far more than it is within our power to give them. And this will lead us to prayer. Intercession is a way of loving others. Intercessory prayer is selfless prayer, even self-giving prayer. In the ongoing work of the kingdom of God, nothing is more important than intercessory prayer. That is beautiful. And I also think it is the type of prayer we need to grow in most. So, I want to show you for just a moment what I think the life God intended is. So, Genesis, Genesis 1, the beginning of the world, um, 
ne- never mind any, like I feel like I, there's so many disclaimers that could be given, right? What that, that passage is not trying to answer the scientific mechanisms by which creation took place, but it is trying to answer the theological and philosophical reasons for life and how we live as human beings. And so um, something that's important to know is uh, it's not Adam, it's Adam, that's how it's pronounced in Hebrew. And so basically, I mean, it's, like, it's not just like a kid named Adam down the street from you who's one person. The word literally translated in Hebrew means person. It means human. And so there are times when the, the NIV will translate it into, uh, translate the phrase um, man and woman. And in Hebrew, what you read is Adam. And, and so that, what, why that's important is the claim in Genesis is the story you're reading in those early pages is not just about, it's not just about two people. It's about human beings as a, as a representative community on the earth. This is not just a story about a guy named Adam. This is the story of God and all of us. Every one of us is, is represented in this story. So um, a, a question that we need to have answered, I think it has a huge bearing on whether or not we're going to really pray is why were we created? In Genesis 1, 26, it says this. So much to unpack here. We're gonna move really quickly though. Then God said, the one God, Yahweh, said let, let us, so all of a sudden God, but also a community, mystery, trinity, here we go. Let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over, and then everything that's created in the first five days is mentioned. The fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So why were people created? If you want to get meta, the biblical answer here is to rule. To have dominion, to have real authority. This is not a manipulative, power-hungry sort of rule. This is an imago day representing the image and, and character and love of God with, a, with real authority in the world. The translation of these Hebrew concepts and words indicate that they were to, re, Adam and Eve were to represent God wherever they went. That it would actually like, that creation would do a double take. When they saw Adam and Eve, they were created so much in the likeness of Yahweh that creation would like do a double take and be like, oh, no, that's just Adam. Uh, and that, that's how much they were entrusted with the image of God to bear his, 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 his way in the world. So human beings were set apart, distinct from creation, bearing God's image and authority to rule over creation with selfless love. The translations of the words are as representers or representatives, as mediators, as mediators, not as mediators, um, as mediators, as go-betweens, wait for it, as intercessors. That's what the word means, to go between and represent one party to another, that Adam and Eve were meant to represent, represent God in, in the world as his managers here on earth, his intercessors, trusted to call the shots. Now, I wanna say this. If you're, if you're theologically freaking out right now, just track with me. I'm not saying God didn't, like, God didn't give the earth all entirely to people and say, let's see how you do. But he did meaningfully share the responsibility of managing the earth with human beings. Meaningfully share the authority and responsibility of managing the earth with human beings. Of course that's true. Psalm 115, 16 says, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. 
Psalm 8, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. God intended, if this hasn't become clear already, to have human beings deeply and authoritatively involved in the running of the world alongside him. I'm going to give you in just a second uh, Dutch Sheet's summary of that, of that principle that shows up in Genesis. But I want you to say it's one of the reasons the tragedy of the fall is so tragic is that there was a forfeiting of that authority, a forfeiting of that dominion, so much so that when Jesus shows up on the scene as a new Adam, and we're going to talk about that, the enemy of our souls comes to Jesus in temptation and basically says, I have the authority to give you the kingdoms of the world because they were ceded to me. I don't know if that messes with you. Let me give you Dutch Sheets' summary. Adam was comparable or, or similar to God, so much like God that it was illusionary. God was recognized in Adam, which meant that Adam, right, human beings, man and woman, carried the weight here on earth. Adam represented God, presenting him, uh, again, his will on the earth. Adam was God's governor or manager here. The earth was Adam's assignment. It was under Adam's charge or care. Adam was, was the watchman or guardian. How things went on planet earth, for better or worse, depended on Adam and his offspring. Please think about that. If the earth remained a paradise, it would be because of humankind. If things became messed up, it would be because of humankind. If the serpent ever gained control, it would be because of humankind. Humanity really was in charge. Why would God do it this way? Why would he take such a risk? From what I know about God in the scriptures and from my personal walk with him, I find only one conclusion. God wanted a family, sons and daughters who could personally relate to him and vice versa. Now, I'm reading this, and I'm like, yeah, okay, okay. I do believe that, but let's not take it too far. There are some things on the earth that God's just going to do no matter what, and it doesn't matter if people are involved or people are praying. That's what I was thinking in response to what I just read from Sheets. But then I went back and started looking at stories that I'm so familiar with, at the Exodus, at Elijah's, like, political confrontation with the powers of his day, at at Esther, at Daniel living in exile in Babylon. Even the most dramatic examples of God's power, things that I would have thought, yeah, God just did this because he kind of came to the end of what human beings could do, so he just did it. And yet, over and over again, he seemed unwilling to carry out the plan without the human beings involved. He seemed to always return to this principle of empowerment and representation, of authority and intercession over and over again, right? Elijah is praying for a a nationwide drought to end and he's doing it in the fetal position because he's birthing something along with God and God's like, could God have just snapped his fingers? I imagine so, but he had Elijah in the fetal position interceding. I went back and looked at the plagues. I'm like, powerful demonstrations of of God's power, irrespective of human beings needing to be involved. And yet every single time, almost like play acting, God has Aaron or Moses use their stick. 
So like wave it over the Nile or, or throw the dust in the air. And he has the human beings involved as full participants, right? There's a time when he's giving them victory in a battle and, and Moses has to keep his arms up and his arms are dropping and people have to come. Is this just theater and hold his arms up? What is God doing? He's insisting that you and I be involved. He's insisting on his redemption coming in the world with our full participation as intercessors. Is he less sovereign? Absolutely not. But in his sovereign, all-knowing powerfulness, he said, you're gonna be involved. I want you meaningfully to have agency in my kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. The biggest redemption of them all comes when Jesus comes as the new Adam. And I'm sorry if that's weirding you out that I keep insisting on saying it that way. But I don't want you to just make it about one guy a long time ago. It is about human, human beings. And the new Adam comes as a mediator, as a representer of Yahweh. This is what the, the opening of John's gospel is all about. No one has seen God, but Jesus was in the bosom of the Father and he has made him known to us. He has represented heaven to us in, in, in human form. And this is so important. It's why it's important that Jesus comes as a human being. Because God is intently set on his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven along relational lines with human beings involved. Could he do it any way he wants? I presume. But this is how he clearly wants it. So that means your prayers can really change things. And it also means if you don't pray... (laughs) You will miss out on things and so will the world. Now, let's not collapse under the guilt of that or imagine we need to carry the responsibility of that on our own. But your prayers, church, can really change things, can really make a meaningful difference in the world. And if you don't pray, you will actually miss out on things and so will the world. When Jesus comes as the second Adam, he comes to recover our lost and forfeited authority. We're gonna unpack this, there's more to say about it. But when God won our authority back through his life and death and resurrection, God was winning prayer back. And he starts to indicate it to his disciples because he has like a breakup conversation with them. After walking with them and teaching them the ways of the kingdom for three years, he says, I'm gonna leave and it's better for you. I'm gonna leave and it's better for you because you've never asked for anything in my name yet. But when you come in my status and my authority to recover dominion that I gain by what I'm doing in the gospel, eventually you're gonna pray in my name and things are gonna happen and change in the world and I'm gonna make you like me as a mediator, a representer, an intercessor as though Yahweh was making his appeal to the world through us. And he says, that's why it's a good thing that I go because the Spirit's gonna come and help you do this and help you become the intercessors that you were meant to be. Karl Barr said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. The disorder that started to crumble in Genesis 3. It's the way we push back on the curse and it's infection on the world. It's by intercessory prayer. John Wimber says, prayer is meeting the needs of others on the basis of God's resources. 
It is like the highest security clearance into, the, into heaven, into the kingdom of God. You go and you gather up everything that you can hold and you come and you distribute the resources of God on the earth. You are a manager <laughs> calling the shots for how heaven's resources are going to get distributed in the world. Intercession is how you participate. We gotta have something here. This issue of injustice has to be dealt with. This grudge, this brokenness, this addiction, this lack of generosity, like this hardness of heart. We have to see the kingdom break in here and the way we do is we pound on the door and we say, hey, we're here, God, for change to be distributed right in this place and we're not coming because we're great people or because we got up super early. We're coming in the name of Jesus. And on his authority, among your coworkers and roommates and neighbors and friends, and bars and coffee shops and soup kitchens, to highly accomplished people in the workplace, to, to every stay-at-home parent, to every student, to those who, who are unemployed, in the high-rises, in the housing projects, in the homeless shelters and prison, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, restorers of the world. That's prayer. The worst kept secret in church history, though, is that we just don't do it. We just don't love to pray. We're just bored with it. Or we feel like we have to do it because of obligation or or guilt. It's like prayer somehow for many of us has become the spiritual equivalent of like eating celery. All right, I'll do this, I guess. But the crunch, honestly, is so annoying. Flavor's bad. But what if we just haven't ever really prayed as we're, spo- as we're intended to? Like what if we've only scratched the very beginning of the surface of what it means to pray in the name of Jesus, the way he was talking to his closest friends about, you've never come in wearing the robes of the air and carrying the status of Jesus and, and come to plunder the riches of heaven and say, I'm taking this to be distributed on the earth because I am a mediator. I am an intercessor. This is my role and responsibility in the world. You've never come to push back the curse. You've been like, I need to pray with my kids before bed because I want them to know that I'm a person of faith. Instead of being like, I'm pushing back the darkness and they are with me. I'm insisting the kingdom's gonna come in this place This addiction's gonna be broken. This stronghold's gonna come down. These people need to be lifted up and dignified. Generosity needs to be distributed here. I've got imagination for a company and God's gonna birth it. I'm gonna lay in the fetal position like Elijah until it comes, until I see, go check seven times. Oh, there it is on the horizon, it's coming. That type of prayer, that's the type of prayer, honestly, that I'm like, okay, I can get up a few minutes early for that. Like, I can do my lunch hour differently for that. I can skip a meal for that. Except, let me say this, church, except in the most extraordinary cases, God has limited himself and his mission on the earth to the management of imperfect, ordinary people like you and me. What is God longing to do that he wants us to participate with him in? A manager in the house. Just as a thought experiment, I want you to think If God gave you everything you asked for this past week in prayer, everything you asked for in prayer last week God would do, how much change would happen in the world? How much change would happen in your family? How much change would happen in life? Right, there's these mysterious images we're gonna get into of God collecting the prayers of his people in bowls. 
Don't know what that's about exactly, but from time to time, the bowls are tipped over and what's in those prayers are poured out in the world. I want it to be that we're filling them up. And if God would do it and pour the bowls out on New York City, pour the bowls out on Park Slope, that there would be awakening and revival and new life and freedom and joy and injustice, chains broken and, like, and, and, and diversity break out in new ways and unity be expressed and the character of God known in our midst. And yet I'm like, still like the most effective thing I can do at a staff meeting is strategize. No, let us plead with God. Not because he needs to be convinced with the twisting of his arm, but because we're pressing against real resistance in the fall and the brokenness of the world. You are a ruler and a co-heir with Christ. You are a manager of heaven's resources. What are you doing with that authority? That's enough for part one. Let's stop and pray. Heavenly Father, I celebrate you I worship you as the king of all kings, the Lord of lords, as the God over all the earth, the sovereign one. And I respect your kingly authority in the world enough to acknowledge how you seem to have set it up, that you want us in on what you're doing, that you want us to participate, that you want to release things in the world through our full participation. And in order to do that, you had to give us agency, meaningful participation. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would do a work to establish this church in her true identity, that we would know we are sons and daughters of God, brought into the kingdom. There is no second-class citizens in your kingdom. There's no one who doesn't get to play or fully participate as an intercessor. Would you convince us of our true identity as your sons and daughters, that we are not disqualified because we are hidden in Jesus? And would you also convince us that our prayers matter, that you are shaping the world through them, that you are bringing your action to bear on real situations through the prayers of your people? And may we become representers, mediators, intercessors. May we learn in our next 10 years as a church to contend in prayer like we never have. Have mercy on us. Help us to repent because of kindness, not because of guilt. And help us to move with you into what you're calling us. Who you're calling us to be. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.